Doc's Watch is meant for entertainment purposes only and not, I repeat, not meant to give medical advice or diagnosis. Always consult your doctor and not your podcast host if you have a medical question, concern, or ailment. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Doc's Watch, the show where real doctors tell you what's real, what's not, and what's maybe possible in your favorite movies and TV shows. I'm Dr. Jen. And I'm Dr. Deepa. We made it to the end of season two, and we are rounding out this season with the final installment of our zombie trilogy. We've talked about making zombies and unmaking them, so now let's talk about what they eat. We will cover Romero's, misguided proteins, and spongy brain mush. Enjoy! Okay, Deepa, let's go to rounds. All right, so this is episode three about zombies. Yep. Right? And the it's the last episode of our in our season, trilogy. So. Yes, and today we're talking mainly about zombie nutrition. Because <laughs> as you know, nutrition is very important for just about anybody. As we've mentioned, starting with our very first episode about Iron Man, <laughs> nutrition is very important. No matter what state of life you're in. Um, And specifically when we're talking about zombies, the uh, sort of commonly held uh, quality of a zombie is that they eat brains. So where does this idea come from, Jen? Weirdly enough, it does not come from George Romero, which is where you would think it would come from. Because as we mentioned before, George Romero is um, wrote and directed or co-wrote and directed the uh, Night of the Living Dead, which is kind of the movie that gets credit for giving us our modern idea of what a zombie is, which again is completely divorced from like its origins. Right. And they even which we like, discussed two episodes ago. Yeah. And they make reference. We're going to talk about the TV show iZombie, but they make reference to George Romero on iZombie yeah, as well. As the father of zombies, basically. Yes. But weirdly, he actually never put brain eating in any of his zombie movies okay he actually he like did an interview with vanity fair in like 2010 where he like they they asked him something about zombies eating brains and he's like where where does this idea come from and they were like i thought uh, it was we you don't know <laughs> did, did, yeah and he was, he was like, like you've never seen no my idea. movies and he basically said that like sometimes when people ask him for um autographs they'll ask him to write like eat brains or something like that on it and he'll just be like i don't understand why (laughs) and it and it turns out that like so like romero zombies basically just eat people right like they just like Like, attack and they're not indiscriminately what they want flesh right they're not specifically like i want brains okay and this has to do with the fact that so like night of the living dead from 1968 romero co-wrote that with a man named john russo Mm -hmm. and basically after that movie they split and in the split they had an agreement that Russo would have the rights to the quote unquote, the living dead suffix and Romero would use quote unquote of the dead because that's not confusing at all. So ah, like okay. Romero's subsequent movies, right. Are like Dawn of the dead day of the dead, etc. Yes. Got it. And then Russo went on and he made a movie called return of the living dead, which okay. has nothing to do with Romero and has nothing or to do Romero's with the zombies. Correct. Okay. This is just a separate thing now. And this was like in 1985. And his zombies in that movie are basically immortal. Like you can't burn them to death. You can't like decapitate them even. Like there's just, it's hard. They're hard to kill for whatever reason. Okay. And the director of that movie basically said that they need to eat brains because they can feel the pain of their decomposition. Ooh. And eating brains helps that okay. for reasons. I mean, and I, he guess he can decide. So that's yeah. Fine. I mean, like, like yes. I mean, he could he could decide whatever he wants. He didn't really kind of elaborate, but like the fan theory behind that, which I'm also just kind of like, okay, mm. is that brains are high in serotonin, which makes you feel better. And I was just like, okay, that's not. Uh, that's okay. not exactly not like exactly you don't how that go works. eat brains to get serotonin, but whatever. Um, I guess if you so can't that's actually produce the movie. serotonin sure, yourself, but then maybe that's uh, the only even way that, to get it. I don't it. know that eating brains is going to help you there, but but like that's the movie that kind of like started 
arguably the zombies eating brains yes. thing. Okay. And that's like and then, 17 years after Night of the Living Dead. That's yeah. way and after. And then like in 1992, The Simpsons <laughs> did a Treehouse of Horror segment called Dial Z for Zombies, which is basically a spoof of Return of the Living Dead, okay. which again is the one that has the eating brains. Right. And that was kind of the thing a lot of people attribute The Simpsons to kind of popularizing that idea because, mm. like, so many people watch The Simpsons. Like, an entire generation yeah. grew up on The Simpsons. And so you just kind of, like, get the idea that zombies eat brains from there. But it actually has nothing to do with Romero zombies, which I just think is, like, interesting. It is interesting. Just, like, what are you talking well, about? Well, I mean, it's kind of like, um, it's like vampires, right? Like, if you go back to, like, Dracula, and then you kind of go from, like, the original Bram Stoker Dracula to, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and what we think of vampires now and Twilight and every, well, we're not going to get into Twilight again. Yeah, but we've talked a lot about Twilight. But it's kind of a similar thing where it's like, oh, all these things that we think were the case from the beginning are like not necessarily the case. Yep. But zombies eat brains. That's I now I know where it comes from. So to, <laughs> not according to Romero, not according, but to, according Romero, to everyone to else. Russo, according to everybody else, except for the guy that like invented zombies. <laughs> Right. Um, <laughs> zombies eat brains. So today we're going to talk about the TV show iZombie, which was on the CW, um, but I didn't watch it until it was on Netflix. Because, yeah, I think I've only seen it on Netflix. Yeah, because it was on some kind of like, hey, this is like low-key a good show. Um, and what iZombie is, it, one of the co-creators is Rob Thomas, who also created uh, Veronica Mars, um, which is why I think it's... That's, like, why it's good, because <laughs> he created Veronica Mars, which is also another good show. Um, but what is the premise of iZombie? So, briefly, there's a character named Olivia, and she's a medical resident, which I think means that she's a resident. Okay. Like, I think she's actually a resident and not a medical student. And uh -huh. she um, is there. It's in Seattle. And she is, uh, like, she goes to this party that, in the beginning, they only show you a little bit of. And then, basically, she wakes up in a body bag, and she's a zombie. And part of it is figuring out what made her into a zombie. And then the rest of it is actually her, of course, solving crimes. Yep. Um, it's, like, it's like a procedural. It's a procedural. Somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, let's talk about, okay, let's first talk about... Yeah, what? sidebar first. The sidebar. Okay. One of the important things this, of this, this show. This has nothing to do with zombies or brains, but this is yeah. just an important thing yeah. that we need to be clear about. We're going to talk a, a little bit more about what make, like, Olivia's zombie qualities. But one thing that's important is that the way that she helps solve crimes is that she works with the, uh, like, a pathologist at the morgue. And specifically, she works with the medical examiner. Yeah. As. But as ostensibly an assistant as an medical assistant, examiner. Yeah. Or like And so we we need to talk about that. Yeah. Because like so we've decided that she was a resident, yes. right, when she was alive. Yes. Because they said medical resident. Yes. Which probably someone was just like confused medical student and resident. I don't know. Whatever. She's well, a she resident. Well she could have been a resident in, I guess, internal medicine. And that's might be a medical resident. That's all of them are all of us were medical residents. I know. Though, I'm just trying arguably. to give them some kind of something. <laughs> and you know? so, so like, what is a medical examiner, right? So this is kind of the point where people get confused because, like, you can't just, like, wander into, a, like, a ME's office and be like, I would like to be an assistant ME despite not right. having any credentialing or yes. whatever. And then they're like, great, you can work with corpses now. Like, that's just not how it works. Absolutely not. Um the systems kind of vary from country to country, but in the U.S. we have two systems because we like to be extra about a lot of stuff. And we have basically a medical examiner and then you have coroners. Mm -hmm. So a coroner is a qualification is not standardized, essentially. It's set by like individual states. There's basically little to no training um, required in a lot of places right. and they can be elected or appointed by people with no medical training yeah i think so the, coroner, a coroner the coroner is like an administrative position it's not like some it's not like the person who is giving you a report about no, an it autopsy is. it is but is this actually, it come from their office no it comes it from is, their they office they actually they actually do the reports like they do investigative autopsies and stuff despite but, but aren't not they having part training. of the like they're part of the justice system 
I don't know exactly how it breaks down there, but like they are highly involved in actually investigating deaths. Right. Yes. And in doing the yes, exactly. In doing and the doing investigative autopsies. and doing the autopsy. It's in their office. Like the person that you elect is not the person doing the dissection, right? It can be. That's the problem. Oh. There's actually a really, really good episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver where he talks about this. Because the fact that, like, there is so little credentialing required to be, like, to have this role in office is, like, a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and it makes sense that the, if you're, like, in a small town and you're trying and you have to elect a coroner, like, you're not going to have that many people to choose from. Right. But a medical examiner is different. So a medical examiner, despite also varying kind of by jurisdiction, generally requires you to have a medical degree, which means you finish medical school, mm-hmm. and then you complete a residency specifically in pathology, and then you do a fellowship in forensic pathology. So you right. have a lot of training that is very specifically geared towards being able to do this kind of investigative pathology, essentially. Um, but it's like, it's... People kind of don't understand how medical training works, which I get because, like, why would you go investigate that if you don't need to? Like, (laughs) even Wikipedia, the way that they write about it indicates that whoever wrote it probably doesn't know exactly, like, how it works because they literally write, quote, in most jurisdictions, a medical examiner is required to have a medical degree, although this, in many of this, need not be in pathology. And I'm like, a medical degree, like an MD, is just a medical degree. It is not in pathology. It is not in internal medicine. It's not in anything. It right. literally just means that you've graduated medical school where you learn a little bit of everything. And then once you do your residency, that's where you kind of pick like a more broad but still like specific subject. Like pediatrics is still broad, but it's more specific than medicine, right? which is what your MD <laughs> All is. All of in. medicine. Yeah, right. exactly. And that, like pathology is a thing that you do residency in. And then yeah. you get board certified after that. For your specialty. Yes. So, like, I think people just don't get that if you have an MD, like, you kind of still don't know a lot, really. Like, and you can't go from, like, an MD to suddenly just being, like, an expert in forensic pathology. Like, that just is not how this works. Right. So. Yes, exactly. And usually the person is a pathologist, which means that their specialty is mostly in looking at biological specimens. Of some variety and using that knowledge to come up with diagnoses based on lots of different types of evaluation, microscopic, gross, which means like looking at the organs in their entirety. (laughs) Uh Um, Macroscopic. Macroscopic, yeah. And even doing like fancy like stainings and even sometimes genetic testing and all this kind of stuff. They do a lot of stuff. Did you go to an autopsy in med school? Yes. How was it? How was it? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely very interesting. Okay. I went also. And it just like just like you said at the beginning, you can't just like walk into one of these offices. Right. It's not simple. It's a whole procedure. And doing an autopsy <laughs> is like it's very um it's it's very regimented. Like, you know, you yeah. have to do it in a certain way to get everything right. You have to make sure you get like certain sections. So the autopsy, I have such a clear memory of the autopsy, mainly because I just wanted to get out of there. (laughs) Because the um, particular uh, person they were doing an autopsy on was obviously a deceased person who hadn't been found, (laughs) hadn't been found until like multiple days after he had passed away. And so it was not a pleasant smell at all. Yeah. And, you know, and we just kind of watched them, the pathologist and uh, his assistant, who I think was a pathology resident or something like that on a rotation, um, right. like make all the sections and kind of decide. It's kind of interesting to decide, like listen to them decide what they need to get, like what all studies they need to do. Um, mm-hmm. And also just kind of like talk about, you know, this XYZ thing tells you this and this XYZ thing tells you this. So anyway. Yeah, it's it's like it is the fact that with all of with all of the medical specialties, basically, like, honestly, like the thing that medical shows get wrong, like the most wrong is this idea that like any individual doctor knows everything about doctoring and every single specialty available. Because like even what you're talking about, right, like 
the knowing what stains to do or knowing what sections you need to get if you're suspicious about X, Y, or Z. Like you need to think about like collecting these specific samples so that you can like look for that. We have no idea. Like we have literally no training and what that looks like. All we know is that like we sent we send orders to the pathology lab and we're like, hey, we're concerned about this. And then they just like do the things that need to be done. And then we get a report that we read. And they tell us. And then sometimes if they're like, we're not so sure. So let's all talk about it on the phone together. And they're like, we can give them the clinical information about the patient. And then they can say, oh, okay, now that I know that, that makes me think this, you know, it's all. Yeah. It is what it is. But like. But we're not like rolling up into pathology lab being like, step aside, people. I'm going to do my own sectioning. There are certain types of doctors that do like to look at their own slides, but it's for very specific things. You know, and oftentimes like looking at your own slides is one thing. Making all of the slides and doing all of the staining and like doing all that is is different. Right. Like you can look at the slides yourself, which is very educational and interesting in a lot of cases. But like oftentimes you are not the person making those. Like, oh, yeah, you just tell them which ones you want. And then they're like, okay, they're ready. Exactly. If you want to see them, you can come down to the lab. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so hopefully that's a little bit clarifying about who does autopsies, medical examiners, coroners. And you said last week tonight, there's an episode about how this all works and how it's not great, which kind of makes sense to me because (laughs) if it makes sense to me, okay, like if you live in a big city, the person that's running your coroner's office, medical examiner, whatever, like they're going to be well staffed, right? There's plenty of people that can do this. If you're like a small town, having a forensic pathologist What's the chances? Right. There's a shortage, I think, of medical examiners in general exactly. in the country. Exactly. So anyway, so Olivia, let's go back, back to, to Olivia. I zombie. I zombie. Yeah. So how did she become a zombie? It is actually it's not unclear. I mean, they say what happens to her, but what makes somebody a zombie in this world is um still a little Confusing. sketchy. So um, I, bec- I think part of it is because this is a TV series and not a movie. So they kind of have to, like, leave a little bit of loose ends so that they can, like, follow the story, you know? Um, so Olivia goes apparently, well, they kind of paint Olivia as a little bit of like, I work so hard. I never have fun. Whatever. I'm like the best resident ever. Um, and she decides she gets invited to a party on a boat where she goes to the party and what you end up finding in like the first episode is that there is it's an energy drink, right? Max Rager. Yeah. So Max Rager sponsors part of this party on a boat. And they're like trying they're handing out this drug called Utopium, which is um, an inhaled drug. So people are like inhaling the drug and You come to find out later, suddenly, like, everybody turns into, like, bloodthirsty zombies, like, very quickly, (laughs) right? Um, And they all, like, sort of kill each other somehow. There's a lot of body bags at the end of this party. But I've no, Liv did not do the drug. Yeah, she never did the drug, right? She never did the drug, but, and when when things start getting out of control, like, the boat lights on fire and, like, everybody's jumping off the edge and stuff like that, she jumps into the water. And then all you yeah, see, I think she gets from attacked her, by somebody. Yeah. So the like main guy, the guy who was on Alias, um, he like I think tries to grab her and stuff, but she like whatever. She makes it off, and all the next thing she knows, she's in a body bag. She unzips it from the inside somehow, and uh, <laughs> like pukes up a bunch of water and is like, "What is going on?" And basically is able to leave that place, which is a beach that is covered in body bags. Um, yep. Nobody has secured the scene. Nobody has secured it. (laughs) But she's able to leave because like the guy from like one of the cops or whoever like sees this happen and is so like disturbed that he may have accidentally put a living person in a body bag that he just like runs away (laughs) and just like which lets her leave. I, I definitely would understand the impulse like if you were doing that and then like somebody got up out of your body bag like yeah. after you but wouldn't you want like, sure to talk to them <laughs> and be like i'm so sorry i literally thought you were dead it definitely depends on how like i mean yes but also like if they came out of there and they were 100 percent just like brains i would be like no and then i would just nope out of there but like Liv looks she's like looking around and she looks coherent so yes. then you could be like oops sorry let's chat about what happened <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe we should like talk about this. Okay, so what happens to but then later on in this series they talk about the the thing that causes the zombiness as being a virus. Right. right like the the Emmy Dr. Ravi something, I forget his last name. Ugh. Um that Liv the works guy. with. Yeah. Yeah. Very quickly like, Indian I think and in British. the first episode finds out that like she like knows that she's a zombie. Yes. And like kinda helps her out. And and he wants to like study this because apparently this is something that is happening that everyone is keeping on the DL, I guess. And he's just kind of secretly studying it in the Emmy's office, like while he's doing his Emmy job. And he talks about it like it is a virus yes. that can pass from person to person because right. like that's how Liv got it, right? Like she was scratched by that's a zombie. That's what the implication is, is right. that she was scratched because and she that's didn't how do she the drug. Yeah. So apparently you can you can do tainted utopium which but specifically plus Max virus, Rager. Right? Yeah. Specifically plus Max Rager. Oh. Which I guess activates the virus. That's how you get it. Because it's not just tainted utopian by itself. You have to have both, apparently. Oh. I and missed then, that Max Rager part of it. And then after that, you are infectious. Like you can infect other people just by like scratching them and stuff. But I it's guess. through contact, right? It has yeah. to be like fluids, blood, sexually transmitted. Yeah, I just want to, like, on the wiki, it literally says, quote, contact with a zombie, being it licking the zombified blood or simple scratching. And I was like, who is licking someone else's blood blood anyway, (laughs) much less zombified blood? You know, I'm not here to judge people for (laughs) what they like. (laughs) Who? Yeah. Okay, so that's how you turn into a zombie. And then the characteristics of the zombie, I think, are quite amusing actually um one of them is that your hair you become pale and your hair turns white but for Liv just she has like one white lock of hair like Anna from Frozen in the beginning and then all of her hair turns white and her skin becomes very pale and then her eyes are like red-ish but they become like more red like if you are really really hungry and for brains I think she talks about the overwhelming desire to eat brains as being like one of the first sensations that she remembered, right? Like brains specifically. So there's that part of it. Um, I do remember they say that she has a really, really low resting heart rate and Mm -hmm. she is able – and there is a scene in the very first episode because um, the uh, pathologist, you know, is so interested in zombies. He wants to take some of her blood. There was a really interesting – scene where he's drawing her blood and he actually comments he's like it's actually really hard to get blood out of you like it doesn't come Mm -hmm. out that easily so that told me that okay her heart rates are really low and her like blood pressure is really low and her central venous pressure is really low just because like not a lot of blood came out when he tried i think also later in the same episode i think she gets shot yes there's like a thing where she doesn't she doesn't actually really lose blood yeah because that's apparently a thing is the zombies don't lose blood generally yeah so the heart um, rate really low. So there is a heart rate, though. Um, and then they don't really taste things. And so it's interesting that she has that she needs to add any flavor to her brains. Yeah. That she can't just eat them well, on their own. Well, apparently that's also like a universal thing because it's not just live. Because like every, yes. all of the zombies, that's like one of the things is they all tend to put like, like a lot of hot sauce on their brains. They have an insatiable desire for brains and hot sauce. But specifically spicy <laughs> brains i guess yes so like in the first episode you see her she also tends to mix her brains with other food for some reason maybe to yeah, make which it is also I guess a question because like do i you think need it's to, to make eat it other look, food i think it's to make it look more normal that's like, probably true yeah just because she's like heating up like cup ramen Although that's the case like you should just make smoothies and stuff well, because the, there she are other just guys has that chunks do make of smoothies. brain in there yeah i know it looks like, weird it looks real weird so like she she takes the top ramen and then she because she's working in the uh, medical examiner's office, oftentimes he leaves and says, go ahead and sew everything up and just like leaves her. And so she like takes half the brain and eats it. Well, she cuts it up into pieces and adds it to whatever she's eating, adds like a whole bottle of hot sauce to it. And then um, and then that's her that's her meal. So here was my question, was they show many scenes of Liv just, like, drinking bottles of hot sauce, all this kind of stuff. 
hot sauce isn't just a taste. It's like acid. <laughs> and so she's drinking so much of it. Do you think that she gets reflux? This is why I have this question. Have you ever had magic berries? You mean, like miracle berries? Miracle berries, like the ones yes. that turn it to the turn ones sour things to the, sweet? Yes, the ones yeah. that do yeah, the yeah, stuff yeah. to your mouth. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things, so miracle berries are these berries that are like fun to, they're not drugs, um, just <laughs> even though it sounds like it, it sounds like drugs. It's not. not drugs. They're actual berries, and what they do is, um, whatever is in them binds to a certain receptor on your taste buds in a, for like a short period of time, and it kind of makes things that taste, I think, like tart and um, yeah, like uh, spicy. basically acidic things. Yeah, just acidic things, and it makes, it them, makes sweet. them taste sweet. So you can like if yeah. you normally you know like you can like eat a lemon like it's an orange so one yeah, time lemons literally they taste like like lemonade lemon drops yeah like the candy yeah yeah they taste really good so but the problem is when you do this is that like you so you can just like like live does in this show you can just like drink hot sauce and it doesn't really like taste like hot sauce it's it's whatever it's more pleasant but you definitely feel the hot sauce like by the time it gets to your stomach so that's why i was like man i get that she needs to like taste it but like her poor esophagus is like if she's worried about rotting from the inside out which seems to be an issue with zo- with these zombies then like adding acid to the inside probably just doesn't seem like a good idea to me anyway yeah. I mean, I suppose it depends on how much hot sauce she had before. Like, Her did hot she sauce always like she, spicy food? Before she was a zombie? Is she acclimated to spicy food or is this just like new? For I her? mean, she is a Caucasian lady in Seattle. So I'm not I'm not going to make too many <laughs> assumptions. But um, anyway, so that's one thing. In terms of her behavior, it seems like eating the brains keeps her having the ability to stay sort of even keeled emotionally and cognitively. It keeps you like human, like like yeah. who you were before you were a zombie, basically. Right. And then if she doesn't eat brains, like if she has a drought of brains, <laughs> then uh-huh. that's when they start to have like the more quote unquote traditional zombie qualities with like kind of losing control of themselves. Yeah, they right. call it becoming a Romero. Yes, becoming like if they a Romero. Basically, if they don't eat brains once a month, I guess, they uh, become a Romero. Like, they lose their intelligence, I guess, permanently, eventually, and then become a stereotypical zombie. Yes. And so, the other cool thing that happens to her uh, is that when she... So, the reason that she is helpful <laughs> in the medical examiner's office... Which is the best part, because basically what's happening here is they have somehow intersected like Veronica Mars, Law and Order, um, Zombies, and That's a Raven is what (laughs) I have decided this show actually is. Uh Um, Because when she eats the brains of a deceased person, she happens to take on some of their qualities, but also can see some of their memories and so like the very first episode there's like a jane doe who comes in um and she eats her brain and she they're trying to identify who this person is and like this person has a history of shoplifting so like during the course of that episode she like keeps stealing things she like Mm -hmm. takes the stapler off of whatever but then she also like sees this memory of her shoplifting and uh there are these other little cues in there like it was there was something about like um, the Obama election or something like that. And she was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, this person um, shoplifted in Vancouver in 2008. And he was like, that's a very specific thing for you to know. <laughs> she was like, uh, just don't worry about it. I know that it's true. Yeah, she's not very good at being chill no. about her And the explanation, the explanation that they give is that she's a psychic. Yeah, I think I think actually like the ME, like Dr. Yes, Ravi he's the is one the one who's like, with that. oh, she's psychic. And the cops are like, oh, okay, because cool. the detective comes down and he's like, any anything to help us identify this person? And she's like, yeah, he shoplifted in 2008 because yeah, that was the year Dr. Obama was like, elected. The most likely explanation for her knowing that is that she's psychic. Yeah. My, med- like, my resident cool. who's working with me and is my assistant, by the way, is also a psychic. And the detective is yeah. like, and also not a resident, uh, just assistant. I'm not as sure. As far as I can tell. Yeah. Well, they, they have this weird conversation at the beginning where he's like, most of my residents don't really want to 
or like are oh, really so chatty think, or something like that. Do you think she like transferred that. into a pathology residency? I think that that's the implication is that like okay. she, that, makes more sense. that she's like, you know, now a pathology resident or something like that. Because makes more sense. that's why she's like down there all the time with him. Um, and so that's like the overarching she doesn't have to go to lectures or anything. Thing. Yeah, she doesn't have to go to lectures. <laughs> she's just she's a pathology resident, but she only does this one thing forever now. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that's the overarching like premise of the show is that she helps solve crimes, murders really only by uh, <laughs> eating people's brains and then having visions and also taking on their qualities. Yeah. Which it's is a fun. pretty common common trope, the like eating brains to get powers, knowledge, memories yes. of previous the previous brain owner, yes. I guess, is like a pretty common trope um in movies and TV and stuff. Yeah. It but wouldn't probably not happen if you ate someone's brain. It definitely will not happen if you eat someone's brain. Yeah. So like if that's what you're thinking, that's not gonna happen. No. So that's just not how brains work. Actually, but we like barely know how brains work. Especially yeah. things that things like personality and memories and stuff like that are not yeah, going to. Which, again, is why you cannot on. design gene therapy to get rid of anger. That's just not a thing that you can do. <laughs> anyway, so let's talk about eating brains. Um, specifically, like, not human ones initially. Right. So, so, like, brains actually are, people have eaten brains basically, yeah. like, since the beginning of recorded history. Like, this is just something that people have done. Right. Um, it is considered part of, like, you know, the term is awful, like O-F-F-A-L, which is just the internal organs of a butchered animal. It includes, like, liver, kidneys, lungs sometimes, sweetbreads, which is thymus, etc. And, like, which organs in particular are on that list and are consumed just is dependent on culture and region. And... As with everything else, what is considered taboo and what is considered delicious is basically dependent on, like, culture, how much it costs, slash class, and then colonialism, right. as per usual. Well, yeah. And also, it, it makes sense, right? Like, you're butchering an animal for consumption. Like, you're going to – you should use all of it. And there were times yeah. when you would eat all of it because you don't know the next time an animal is going to come by. Yeah. So, and I, I think there was – there's some, like – this is, this is like, one of those – hypotheticals that people propose in papers that you're just kind of like, I feel like this is a stretch, but this is a theory about it. And basically they were like early on before like humans or pre-humans like figured out how to use weapons to like take down an animal. Mm -hmm. One thing that you could do is you could scavenge, right? Like if, if you came across a dead animal that was recently killed or something and you need to eat, like that is something that you can do. And oftentimes like the head would still be intact because it's hard to break into a skull. Ah. So like if you can figure out how to yeah. open a skull and there's like brain in there, which is a lot of fat, basically, and a lot of calories, then like you wouldn't waste that because it's not. The whole like taboo thing or feeling weird about that is like a cultural thing. It's not like yeah. an inherent thing, yeah. aspect of humans. Can I tell you a but, quick like, story about sweetbreads? Sure. So I didn't know what sweetbreads were. And when I was in college, I we I went out with some friends to like some some fancy like French restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. And a couple a few a couple you know, a couple of my friends are vegetarian and usually like the vegetarian option on a menu is like the least expensive, right? Especially right. like when you're in like one of those fancy restaurants where there's only like 10 menu items anyway. Yeah. Um but anyway, it'll so, be like chicken, $32 and then like salad Exactly. So anyway, so we're sitting there and there's not really descriptions of what the foods are. It's just like the words. Yeah, because it's a fancy restaurant. Exactly. And so we see the word sweetbreads. And so my friend, but it's also like the most expensive thing on the menu. So anyway, my friend like orders it thinking that it is some kind of bread based dish and Mm -hmm. that it would be vegetarian. And then it gets served. And then she, that's how we all learned what sweetbreads was because... She had to ask the wait- waiter, like, excuse what me, like, what is this exactly? Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, oh, are good. he's like, oh, it's this and this and this. And she's like, that is not good what I know. thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. I will well, have this is like, salad. like People have euphemisms for a lot of these things because, again, it's like, it's, th- it's so tied up into a lot of, like, cultural. This is, like, a topic that I really like talking about. It's, like, food taboo specifically. But it's so, like, tied into a lot of, like, cultural 
taboos and then like class things. Yeah. Right. Because like there's also like Rocky Mountain oysters or whatever. Right. And those are bull's testicles. Like Ah. that's just what that means. So like if you're traveling in specific areas of the United States, like instead of just being like, here's some testicles, they're like, we're just going to use this euphemism for it because we feel weird about like saying that that's (laughs) what this is. But like it is just a known thing that people eat. And then frequently because organs and stuff were like discarded, it is it is food that people have figured out how to like cook in a specific way. And usually by, like, poorer people, right? Right. Who had more access to this. And then, like, rich people would eat all of the muscles and stuff. Yes. Of and an so animal. Somebody else has and to then, figure out how to, like, prepare this. Right. And then over time, especially now, you have, like, this revival of, like, different kinds of foods that are, like, specific to different communities. And they're being, like, fancified in restaurants. And so now you do have to pay, like, so much money for sweetbreads, which was the thing that was, like discarded previously right. because people would look down on other people who everything is have a cycle. to like eat stuff like that it's just like a whole and then of course you take things like goose liver and you call it foie gras and now it's like super expensive in french and everybody's like oh that's really fancy but it's still liver like <laughs> anyway so brains specifically are mostly water but then followed followed by that they are f- a lot of fat and cholesterol and then protein And animal brains are basically eaten in a lot of different cuisines historically, including French, Indian, Turkish, Chinese, Italian, Spanish, Mexican, and, like, many, many others. The earliest cookbook, which I think was from, like, like Rome or something in 4th or 5th century AD or whatever the equivalent was, um, basically included brains as, like, a stuffing for sausages, eggy pudding, and rich with brains. It had, like, a lot of variations. So this is not, like a new phenomenon and it's not actually like that strange in terms of human history it's mostly just like now we have a lot of like weirdness about eating organs depending on where you live um obviously eating human brains is a little bit different because now we're talking about cannibalism and that's like a whole other thing that is frequently and historically just taboo in human society and most human cultures but not all human cultures because humans are all very different so We want to talk about eating human brains because we want to talk specifically about prion diseases. And I think we need to do a little bit of background before we get into, like, the actual brain eating and the prion diseases. Prion diseases are... Okay, the last couple of episodes, (laughs) we've talked about how incredible viruses are. And viruses are very ubiquitous. Prion diseases are absolutely not ubiquitous and are extremely weird and strange but also very cool for that same reason they're weird and strange and like i think almost creepier yes like so okay so back up prions are basically proteins that are misful a specific protein that is misfolded that can somehow transmit its misfolding to a normal variant of the same protein okay so let's break down what that means so proteins are found everywhere in your body. Proteins they do, do all everything. sorts of different things. They do all the yeah. things. They do all of the things. And for proteins to function correctly. So like we've talked about kind of how your genes are kind of like the roadmap to making a lot of proteins. You take your genes, you turn it into um, mRNA that gets turned into proteins. Right. And like the way that it kind of gets turned into proteins is your genes are telling the assembly line like what amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, mm-hmm. to put together in what order. Yes. And then once they're put together in a specific order, they are folded into the shape that they need to be in order to serve whatever function they're going to serve. Right. And and it's possible for like proteins to become to be misfolded or folded incorrectly, or like if you have a mutation somewhere, it doesn't fold the way that you want it to, and then it can't function the exactly. way that it's going to. Yeah. Um, that doesn't always happen, but that is one of the ways that you can have like issues. And so in this case, the weird thing about this is that these proteins can give other proteins that are normal this weird folding like it messes them up it's so yeah. strange <laughs> like, normally the only way to really mess up the way a protein is made is like jen said go back to the blueprint which is usually your dna or sometimes even like messing with your rna and messing up the like order of the amino acids in that protein 
And that doesn't yeah. allow it to fold up the way that it needs to fold up for lots of lots of reasons. But the way a prion disease works is that you have a misfolded protein that somehow makes the regular version of that protein misfold. And then yeah. you have two misfolded proteins that go around Continue making... Continue to do that. So it's like... What's yeah. the word that I'm looking for? Oh my God, exponential. Exponential. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's and exponential. It's, and in addition to the fact that like you can transmit the misfolding... The misfolding oftentimes makes this particular protein resistant to breakdown yes. by proteases, which are enzymes that normally would break down proteins. Um, and that is like so bizarre. And, and so it can just like it can thing. just like build up. But it's it the, it's so weird because it's very hard to wrap your mind around a protein just doing something to another protein. And then yeah. as we're already talked about how like viruses don't really have a brain of their own, but at least they have like DNA and stuff like that. Yeah. Prions are just, they're just proteins. They have even <laughs> less information and they cause a lot of problems. So yeah. And prion itself, the word, uh, the person who like coined it says that the word comes from proteinaceous infectious particle because like, I mean, that's self-explanatory. It's, <laughs> it's a protein. It's infectious. Yes. Like, yes. All right, so how are prion diseases transmitted? Well, the main thing so, is that you have to get the protein in you, some the bad protein in you somehow. Right, and there are a few a few ways that that can happen. Um, and so, like prion diseases are responsible for like this family of diseases in humans and other animals called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, mm -hmm. which we're also going to break down for you. Transmissible means transmissible. We talked about that. <laughs> yes, we talked about that Spongiform means like sponges, like literally like sponges, yep. because it creates little holes in the brain, making it look kind of like a sponge. Mm -hmm. And then encephalopathy, I think we've talked about before a little bit. It basically just means brain disorder. Yeah. And oftentimes in this case, degenerative, which mm -hmm. just means like it gets worse over time. Yes. Um, in cows, Mad cow disease is one of these. Is a TSE or transmissible yes. spongiform encephalopathy in sheep? There's something BSE, called scrapey, which is bovine spongiform right. encephalopathy. Right. And then there's also like fatal familial insomnia, which is literally fatal <laughs> insomnia. <laughs> That's so. That sad. is also a prion disease. It's very horrible. And like, and so prions like prion like domains like have also been found in other proteins. And what can happen is, like we said, they can sort of form clusters or aggregates, and sometimes those will be called amyloids, depending on the protein. Like, yeah. the protein that forms amyloid basically has, like, a prion-like domain that can kind of misfold. And those things can accumulate and cause damage and cell death, and that's one of the things that they think is involved in, like, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's for specific people. So there's, like, a genetic component, right? Like, okay. you can inherit um, this kind of... Um, predisposition i guess for like misfolding because there is a strong genetic component but then also it can be sporadic because misfolding again is caused basically by like a change a change in sequencing of the amino acids that make up a protein and so that can happen sporadically just through like mutations right that replace like one amino acid with another in your blueprint and then you end up with like a misfolded protein and then a very small percentage generally comes from eating like infected tissue so like some kind of tissue that has this misfolded protein in it and as far as we know all prion diseases are untreatable and fatal such a rosy just thing like, prion diseases yeah untreatable so and qu sometimes quite and fatal. quickly fatal <laughs> depending yeah. on the type so what does this have to do with eating brains so i'm going to talk about kuru okay which is a prion disease is it the first prion disease that we learned about? I don't, I'm not, I don't uh, remember exactly. Probably. But Kuru is basically a disease that was first found in the foray people of uh, Papua New Guinea. And it's derived from a foray word, kuria, which basically means to shake. And what happened was like in the 1950s, researchers who visited the foray people, visited their villages, found that the people were dying of an unexplained illness. Um that involved like people having a lot of ex tremors and then also like uncontrollable laughter and then being unable to take care of themselves. And 
Shirley Lindenbaum, who's a medical anthropologist, basically traveled from like village to village in 1961, mapping family trees, because initially everyone thought that this was some kind of like genetic disorder. And her mapping of the family trees showed that it wasn't and that you would have people who were like completely not genetically linked would have this illness. Hmm. And it didn't seem to run in families in a pattern that they recognized. Good for you, Shirley. And the other thing to know is the 4A tribe practiced funerary cannibalism. And so deceased family members were basically cooked and then eaten to help free the spirit of the dead. And in one of the anthropology papers that I was looking at, they were quoted as basically reasoning, quote, if the body was buried, it was eaten by worms. If it was placed on a platform, it was eaten by maggots. The 4A believed it was much better that the body was eaten by people who loved the deceased than by worms and insects. And... What would happen is the brains were most often eaten by women and children, and those were the people that were generally affected in the 4A villages. Hmm. And so the theory kind of like underlying all of this is that someone in a 4A village probably developed sporadic creutzfeldt jakob disease, which we're also going to talk about in a minute, which is a prion disease. And then because of the funerary ritual, it spread. Right. Because of the consumption of infected tissue. Okay. And so the symptoms of Kuru are are basically very similar to the symptoms of a lot of the other um, TSEs. It, you basically get what's called progressive cerebellar ataxia. So again, a lot of terms in this episode. We'll break it down. Yes, progressive true. means progressive. Progressive means gets worse. <laughs> cerebellar means it involves your cerebellum. Indeed. And your cerebellum is involved in is a part of your brain that's involved in a lot of things, but we think of it as being highly involved in motor control and specifically things like coordination and accuracy, like precision of movements. Yes. And then ataxia basically means loss of coordination or muscle movements. And so this is saying specifically that your loss of coordination is involving your cerebellum as opposed to like your cerebrum, ah. if that makes sense. Yes. Um, I mean, so, it makes sense. Perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so with, so like initiating Muscle movements, like telling like telling your arm that you want to do something, comes from a different part of your brain than your arm being able to accurately do something. Sure. Yes, and exactly. And so this particular disease affects the accuracy, okay. not necessarily like you telling it to do something. Right. So after you get symptoms of this disease, it basically in about a year progresses to death. Mm-hmm. There's three phases. You have ambular, ambulant, sedentary, and terminal. And it's basically like you go from being able to walk but having some tremors, having some coordination issues, um, and then it progresses to, like, emotional instability and ability to, like, keep yourself upright and then uncontrolled and sporadic laughter. And then ultimately you develop things like dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing. Mm. And so then you would have the inability to eat or drink and you'd have malnutrition and wasting and things like that. And then ultimately kind of becoming unresponsive to your surroundings despite being conscious and then death. And death often came from secondary things like pneumonia. Because right. basically if you can't swallow and you can't like protect your airway and stuff like that, you're it's, much more susceptible really to, to get getting pneumonia. bacteria down there and getting pneumonia. And so a lot of people would die from infections. Mm-hmm. And once this was kind of discovered as the cause... The 4A people basically stopped the practice in the early 1960s. Okay. And, but, like, the last known death caused by Kuru was in, like, 2010. Mm. And the reason for that is because the incubation time of this prion disease, like, averages 10 to 13 years, but has been shown to be up to 50 years. Like, after your initial exposure, Hmm. 50 years later, potentially, you could, like get symptoms that stinks. and then have this and then like we said with as with like all prion diseases there's basically no treatment so it's supportive care and then yep. ultimately like people die of yeah. this disease and it can be kind of confusing in the beginning i mean i guess if you are in this area you might think of it but the symptoms of it are similar to a lot of neurodegenerative diseases right. so you might not even You'd think have to do specific testing yeah yeah which is hard um, to do and then interestingly like in 2015, researchers basically did like some um, genetic studies of the 4A people and discovered that like some of the 4A people had a essentially like a point mutation 
in this protein in like the part of their genome that's responsible for this protein that mm-hmm. replaced a glycine, which is one amino acid, with a different amino acid called the oh, valine. Like the lysine contingency and, in Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> and because glycine. because of this amino acid switch, these people had a genetic resistance to oh. prions. So like at the University College London, they did some experiments using mice um, and engineered some mice that had this variant and found that if you had mice that had like a 50-50 uh, split between like a normal protein, this normal protein, and then the specific mutation, this specific like glycine to valine mutation, they were resistant to getting Kuru and CJD. And then if you had mice that had 100% this, like, replacement, then they were resistant to every prion strain that they tested, which oh. was, like, 18 different types wow. on these mice. Good for and them. And that's, like, really interesting. Yes. Also, it's really powerful because it's, like, literally one amino acid replacement in this one. That's what that's what we were saying about, like, the misfolding thing is, like, if you have one amino acid change, it can actually, like, impact a lot of things. Yes. So... Like Jen mentioned, CJD stands for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is another type of uh, prion disease that is known as subacute spongiform encephalopathy. Um, and similarly, it is quite fatal. Um, and it causes the same sort of symptoms that you see before, memory problems, behavioral changes, coordination because of all of your cerebellar stuff, visual disturbances. And about 70% of people who get this die within a year of diagnosis. Now, the rate of people getting this is very, very low. It's like less than one in a million people suffer mm-hmm. from CJD. However, there are some autopsy studies that suggest that there are people who um, have been diagnosed with like Alzheimer's and, and different types of dementia and things like that, that up on autopsy may have actually had CJD. So it might be a little mm. bit higher than we think. Um, and the way that people uh, get CJD like nowadays or the way that you can get it is not really through the eating of brains, but having that misfolded protein on like other uh, surfaces that come into contact with your body. <laughs> so what and do in this I case, mean we're not that? even talking about eating human brains. No, no, because no. there was for a while, there was like the whole outbreak. I'm sure everybody remembers of like mad cow disease. Right. In the UK. Yeah. And that was related to meat, like, tainted beef yes and that's no this is mainly from things like human brain products that you that get like transferred from one person to another and what i mean by that is like some people sometimes they'll use like dura which is like a sort of a protective layer on parts of your nervous system and they'll like have to replace it in someone and they'll get it from a cadaver and if that has cjd on it then like that's how you can get cjd um corneal grafts which people get not all the time, but that's one thing. Um, there was a couple of cases of sometimes you implant electrodes in the brain itself to study, like mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, why a certain person is having seizures or what what's going on with them. And the, the scary thing about prion diseases is when we use medical instruments, there is a way that we clean them and like decontaminate them. And for 99% of things, that procedure gets rid of everything so it's usually like heat based um called like autoclaving uh but prion diseases are famously resistant to this and so if somebody has a prion disease and you use a surgical instrument on them the way that you have to clean it is like extremely 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 complicated and they actually just recommend throwing the instrument away altogether Mm -hmm. because that's one way that you can get it so like if you don't clean the electrode in the proper way, which is using heat and chemicals, then that's one way to get it. And then this was the one that was interesting to me, which was um, some people got it from tainted human growth hormone um, that different Hmm. people have to take for different reasons. But that's because it is extracted from the pituitary gland of cadavers, which your pituitary, as we talked about in some episode prior, is uh, like in your brain. So there's, you know, brain around it so you can get i think that was the luke cage episode yeah so that is how you can get a prion disease from taking human growth hormone um and uh and so like we said there's there is a way that so the the interesting thing about the prion protein 
which is PRP, and that's the one that gets messed up in CJD, is that like it's very ubiquitous and what we say conserved, which means that like that same protein exists in lots of in lots of animals, humans, yeah. like cows, whatever. Nobody's a hundred percent sure exactly what it is that it does. Like yeah, like it's found in the cell walls, but we don't know exactly why. why. Like, is it just structural? We don't know. But there is a lot of it. And when we say conserved, we mean like the basic genetic code and like the structure of it is very much the same across lots of different species. Right. Which uh, is why you can have things like a misfolded protein that you would consume from a cow. That like messes you up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the what happens is that like the the in Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, the bad guy protein comes in and does this thing, which changes. The reason I'm going to say this is because it triggered such a deep med school memory for me, <laughs> which was that I remember the exact sentence, alpha helix transforms into beta pleated sheets. Nobody <laughs> needs to remember that. But that is what the bad guy but you protein. you remember that forever. I will remember that forever. That is what the bad guy protein does to the good guy protein and then turns the good guy protein into a bad guy protein. And then exponentially, there's bad guy proteins everywhere. Um, and like I said, there's no treatment and it's universally fatal. There's some notable, not maybe not notable, but like people have died from Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease within the last like five years. Um, there was this like actress who was on general hospital and had some kind of role in American horror story who died like in 2016 from CJD. Mm. Um, and then wow. there was a guy who, uh, John Carroll, who was something fancy for like the LA times or something like that, like the owner or something like that. And he also died from Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So that's mm. CJD. That's prion diseases. They're terrible, but also <laughs> fascinating. They are fascinating. Yeah. And just like, I mean, if you wanted to base like a zombie disease on something, like, I guess like, I mean, I was going to say, well, I guess it's you would die a in a year one. if you had this. Yeah. But then again, like they base that other one on Ebola. So like so <laughs> that apparently isn't a concern. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. So that's prion diseases and zombies shall we go to our resident lounge yes so our resident lounge is where we talk about interesting things that we came across during the course of researching the episode um for me i was looking up like eye zombie brain like what they were making the brain out of because she's yeah. curious and they basically make it out of it's basically jello but it's basically like coconut almond flavored jello oh okay <laughs> that they like Cast in a brain mold, obviously. My and question then, is, did they use real hot sauce? Because she puts a lot of hot sauce on those. Ooh, that's a good question. I didn't look that up specifically. Yeah. But I also think that, like, one of the interviews, there was an interview with the guy who plays the cop, the, oh, like, the yeah. detective yeah, yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he said that, like, she would have, the person who played Liv would have, like, a spit bucket nearby because oh, she had to eat so, so many much of, it. of the brains. I mean, and it that it wasn't good. texturally, like, it just was kind of gross. Yeah. So well, so in um in Game of, of Thrones in Game so. of Thrones there's an episode where like she has to eat a horse heart and yeah. she describes what it was made out of and she similarly says that it was kind of like a gummy bear like they made it she's like it sounds great but then it's like the size of her head and she had to yeah. eat it for like however many hours yeah <laughs> she was and like, like live she she's eating like this coconut almond flavored jello like every and it's day not, it's like a very firm jello it's yeah. not like normal jello texture it's extra firm jello and she's eating it like with you know pasta like cup and noodle and stuff and like the the cop guy apparently eats some in one episode i guess and he eats it on pizza oh Oh, I yeah. think accidentally. Yes, I, I do remember. remember. Yeah, I have a vague but he talked about of this how, episode. In the interview, he talks about how basically like after that, he like couldn't eat pizza for a while because the jello <laughs> thing was, was like, like so, so gross, gross to him that he was just like, I cannot. And she was eating it like every day. Um, yep. My thing for the resident lounge is that we're going to have a Numo corner. Is that what we called it? Numo corner? Numo Corner sounds good. Yeah. I don't remember what we <laughs> called it. Originally. So we in um, one of the episodes in season one, we talked about pneumothorax. And the show iZombie happens to open with a scene in which Liv decompresses attention pneumothorax. So 
We're going to have to rate it. So briefly, this is what happens in the scene. So Liv is like a quote unquote medical resident. Um, This kid is being wheeled into the emergency room, although they only are really in the hallway of the hospital. (laughs) Um, But like the front door, which is also kind of strange because usually the ERs are off to the side. Anyway, it's fine. So um, he is being wheeled in and he is like pale and his lips are blue and they go through some gibberish medical talk like he has no pulse he's cyanotic and she starts saying get me a pulse ox and i was like okay he's definitely hypoxic (laughs) you can see it you can see it he's blue um she's like get me a pulse ox get me a central line for some reason somebody next to her is like we need to wait for dr jenner or something like that who's like the chief resident which whatever that's not a thing um and she says, get me the yeah, just biggest. FYI, we don't wait for chief residents to supervise every procedure because that would be impossible. Yeah. And <laughs> so, like, she's like, get me the biggest needle, which, OK, fine. Biggest needle. That'll work. Um, and a syringe. And she just stabs him in the left side of his chest and uses the syringe. But then she takes the plunger out of the syringe all the way. Which I was like, I guess you didn't need to connect it to a syringe, but that's fine. Um, and then like yeah. decompresses the pneumo. And, like, that's how we know that she's a good doctor. So, how are we going to rate the pneumo on Mm. iZombie? Okay. I mean, I think you have to rate the procedure, right? I think that's what we were doing in the past. Okay, fine. We don't don't have to rate the diagnosis. Right. Yeah. Because the diagnosis in this case ended up correct. I think I'm going to give it... Hmm. I'm going to give it two. Two. Okay. Out, out of, of five. Oh, out of five. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give it two out of five lack of stethoscopes because of the lack of stethoscopes. I think she had because one. As far as, I think she had did one. She, yes. Did she listen? Does she know she which side the pneumo is I think on? she did because listen. Because that was the thing that I was like, I think I could she not was remember. listening, but I, I think her, so she stabs him in the left chest and I think that she was listening on the right. Okay, so she just assumed that the left was collapsed then? I don't, I don't know. Based on his presentation? I'm not certain. Okay, either way, give it a two out of five. Lack of stethoscopes, because that was what I had already said. Okay. And then I also think that, like, the the points that I'm taking off are basically because I think, you know, you have time to listen. Yeah. That's one thing you have time for. And then two... She doesn't palpate for any landmarks. She just, like, right. jams the needle in very confidently. And I'm like, you don't know like there's just the chances of you hitting a rib when you just stab someone randomly in the chest with a syringe <laughs> like is really really high more than 50 percent. So, so like i feel like you should be a little more careful yeah about how you're doing it but i mean she was successful yeah maybe i'll give her a three because it was successful and like she I was gonna give her the appropriate three. amount of urgency so yeah i'm gonna give her a three and for the for and all three points are because she just happened to be successful she at least asked for a large needle <laughs> Um, That's and true. then and and they didn't make the sound happen until she took the plunger out of the syringe. Mm, also true. But Which where good, she stabs him, point. where she stabs him is like basically his sternum. <laughs> so she she Oof. she's too high to have probably um, run the risk of like hitting his heart or anything like that. Um, and his heart's going to be all pushed over to the left side anyway. Um, but uh but the fact that the needle went in, I mean, like, she's so, she's very, what we say, medial. So she's really close to the middle of his chest. Yes. And she would have just missed. Yeah. And you can't. It was just. And you usually don't just, like, I don't know. The way she stabbed him was so funny. Because it's, like, stabbing. just did it on camera, but you can't see it. It's but she basically, like, him. It's she, like, not- she, like, literally, as if you were taking a knife and it was, like, the psycho, like, eh, 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 kind yeah. of stabbing where you, like, bring it up to your shoulder and then you, like, slam it down. That's that what is she not, did. We don't do that. No. We don't do that. <laughs> you shouldn't do that generally. It's a little that's that's very dramatic. That's they, not how but we they do. did she did clean the area before she stabbed him. Like somebody takes a little chlorhexidine or something and like does a little cleaning. Well, and I was like, at least well, there's that. They did that. I guess. Um, Is right. she wearing gloves? Uh, I don't remember. I want to say no. I probably no. Okay. Either way, it's a three. I anyway, guess. Yeah, three is fine. Okay. All right. Great. All right. So let's go to our discharge summary where we will actually review the thing. What are we reviewing here? Hmm. Should okay. we review Eye Zombie? And like as a show? As a show is too much. <laughs> I think we should review. How about review? Like, I mean, specifically to this episode, we're talking about eating brains. Yes. So, and then we're talking about zombies. So I guess you can, 
however you want to interpret rating like if, how they become zombies or the eating brains okay. process like that whole thing all right so i'm gonna give um i'm gonna give i zombie five out of ten tainted utopium vials <laughs> it gets five points because i enjoy the characteristics of zombies that they added purely for their entertainment value which is mainly uh -huh. just watching somebody eat a lot of hot sauce, hot try to sauce. hide the fact that she's eating brains constantly, and the fact that she has this like these weird that's a raven visions. Um, <laughs> I it can't get more points than that because it's still very confusing how you become a zombie to me, mm -hmm. and exactly what happened to her mm -hmm. and other people who are zombies. I think my reasoning is pretty much the same. I'm also going to give it a five out of ten cans of Max Rager. <laughs> and and for so basically the same reason, because like I think I think I'm fine with like the trope, right? Like the eating brains giving you memories. Right. It's not true, but I'm kind of like fine with that as a premise. And and I like the like like you said, that's so Raven psychic helping to solve mysteries it's like thing. a reverse that's so raven because she can only yeah. see the past <laughs> she can't see the future and and the eating of the brains like them trying to make it palatable and incorporating it into their food and stuff i just think is fun it's fun but they lose like the five points that they lost basically are for like the zombie like what what is in the energy drink right what is in the tainted utopium such that the two of those things together creates zombies right. and then also somehow there's a virus like i'm confused about that there's too many moving parts to creating zombies <laughs> zombies are complicated as it turns out all right i guess so oh well, yes exactly because the guy who even created zombies wouldn't recognize these things as his zombies no He's like, they just eat human flesh. I don't know why they don't eat each other. That's a whole different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway. Okay. So that's actually it for season two. We are planning to take a little bit of a hiatus again, basically, before bringing you season three. And in the meantime, you should rate and review us on Apple. I hear that it helps other people find the show. That's what every that's other what podcast people has say. told me. I don't know. I mainly like to hear and see if you guys like it. If you don't like it, don't, don't rate us. us. But I guess you can yeah. tell us. If you don't like ways. it, what are why are you still listening? Yeah. Don't leave us a rating. <laughs> exactly. And if you have any burning medical questions or other interesting topics that you'd like us to talk about, uh, drop us a line. Uh, you can email us at docswatchpod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at DocsWatchPod. Or you can Instagram. You can slide into our DMs on Instagram <laughs> at DocsWatchPod as well. It's just DocsWatchPod. How many times? How, how fast can you say that? How I, many can't, times? I can't do it. It's very difficult. DocsWatchPod. Anyway, thanks for joining us for season two. And we will see you next season. Thanks for listening to Doc's Watch. You can subscribe to our medical ramblings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Doc's Watch Pod or visit us at docswatchpod.com.